this morning. We are continuing in our, our journey through Romans, and we're actually in our, our third week where we've been in Romans chapter 8. A, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that this is a, a pivotal moment in, in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. It's when the conversation turns from what the gospel does in us or what the gospel does for us to, to how we respond to the gospel, how we respond to the gift that we've been given. As I've been saying over and over again, when we think of, of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we should think of Paul running to us and saying, I've got good news. I've got good news. And chapter eight is when it, it, it turns to what we do with that good news. How do we respond to the good news? So we've talked about setting our minds on things of the spirit instead of things of the flesh. And then about being adopted as sons and daughters into a community, into a family that is shaped first and foremost by the spirit. So we we don't have to approach, this is what we talked about last week. We don't have to approach the heavenly father. Remember Abba, daddy. We don't have to approach the heavenly father thinking that our relationship depends on some sort of performance. But we are accepted as we are, as co-heirs with Christ, accepted and given authority to continue the work that Jesus began. This morning, we're looking at how interacting with the spirit today, how we interact together as a community with the spirit today has a, a, a connection with the promises that we've been given for the future. How what we do today has a connection with, with what's coming in the future. Often when we, we talk about the kingdom of God, you'll hear me say something along the lines of our role as we follow Jesus on this journey of faith, friendship, and service is to give glimpses of God's kingdom to our neighbors. To, to give those, those moments to our neighbors where we say, yes, God's love is real. Yes, God's love exists. And here, let us show you a little bit of how it looks. Theologians often talk about this as uh, the kingdom living in the already here, but not yet fully realized. So we give these small glimpses as we function as that spirit-defined family community out in the world today. That already but not yet mindset describes the tension we feel in a broken world. We see places where God is definitely on the move and we say, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And then we look at other places and we say, oh, there's something hard going on there. What, what, do we, what do we do with that? Paul puts it this way, again, in Romans 18, 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This text, it starts and ends with God's glory being revealed in and through God's chosen children. And in the middle, Paul writes that that glory is the the pinnacle of God's plan, not only for his people, but for all of creation. It's the image that's painted uh, in what we read earlier from Isaiah that we often read during Advent or during, during Christmas of, of the, the, the place where the wolf will lie with the lamb, the, the leopard with the goat, the calf with the lion, and the little child shall lead them. But it doesn't stop there, right? The cow will eat with the bear. Their young will be friends. The children will, will play with cobras and vipers. I hate snakes. But... So I, I just don't like them. I just don't like them. And the entire earth and everything, everything in it, all of creation will know God, will, will live into their purpose. Isaiah captures this beautiful vision for the future. And I actually think what, what Paul is writing to the Romans is, is trying to capture that same sort of picture when everything is made right. In his commentary on Romans 8, Dale Bruner captures the, the place we find ourselves today in this, this, we're not quite yet there. The world isn't perfect. We know it. And he captures what, what Paul was trying to get to. Bruner writes this. The church lives not only in deep gratitude for the God of love above us and for God's Son alongside us and for God's Holy Spirit within us, but it also lives in deep anticipation of the hope for the great future for all creation ahead of us. We live in anticipation of what is to come. And in this text, Paul gives us two promises for the future that we can cling to as we live in anticipation today, now. Now, I know it it might come as a surprise to some of you, but it's definitely not a surprise to my family. Uh, I'm not the most patient person in the world. I'm one of those guys who struggles with the whole concept of delayed gratification. Anyone else want to admit that they struggle with, with that idea of delayed gratification? It's just me. Oh, a couple of you. I love to travel, but I don't necessarily love to fly. I just want to get to the destination. Uh, I'll ask Haley a question. And instead of waiting for her to give a response, I will want that response right now. You can't think about it. I need to know right now. I just want it answered quickly. When our kids were babies, I remember being told to savor every moment. But when one of them would wake up in the middle of the night, I wasn't savoring anything. (laughs) I couldn't wait for sleep training to be done. I just wanted them to get it now. The reality is, Sometimes the most important part of a journey isn't the destination. It's the journey itself. 
Last week I mentioned the class I took uh, in seminary that was taught by, by Fuller's uh, theology department and their psychology department in adolescent development. And there was, uh, where, where the professor, remember he mentioned that the most social being in the world is an 11 or 12 year old girl who runs around with antennas saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Looking for that place where someone finally answers, yes, I love you. And, and I talked about how, how we as a church need to respond to, to that same sort of question, whether it's coming from an 11 or 12-year-old girl or an adult, that yes, you have a, a place here. But I also remember reading an article in that class about children and discipline, and oh, does it sound different now that I have kids of my own. It was written by a psychologist from Harvard and Virginia Tech, and he was exploring the often accepted way of teaching or raising or disciplining kids. Put simply, if a child does something good, we reward them. If they do something that they shouldn't do, they're given a consequence. The psychologists argue that by focusing on results, whether those results are rewards or punishment, we're doing more harm than good to our kids. Because we're not giving them the tools to cope. It's just the results. As a result, instead of teaching children how to work through whatever it is that they they need help with, they only think about the reward. They only think about the punishment. They only think about the future. Sometimes I think we're the same way in the church. We think about our reward, eternal life, or our punishment, eternity separated from our Creator. But the the promise that Paul gives in today's passage can help us to to break away from that result-driven belief system that's ingrained into everything we do. These promises can help us to be patient. They they can help to, to guide us through what we deal with each and every day. And as we're guided by them, we're also given assurance for the future. In in verse 26 and, and 27, we're promised help in the unknown. Paul writes that the Spirit helps us in places where we are weak, that it intercedes for us. First, it intercedes when we don't know how to pray. As I mentioned uh, during our prayer earlier, sometimes we just don't have words that feel adequate. Sometimes our best prayer is simply, uh, or what Paul calls here in the letter, wordless groans. Last week, I I said that a good translation of Abba, Father, would would be the intimate title of Daddy. And when Jesus was in in the Garden of Gethsemane, he he cried out in prayer and said, Abba, please take this cup from me. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates Romans 8.26 this way. If we don't know what to pray or how to pray, it doesn't matter. The Spirit does our praying in and for us making prayer out of our wordless sighs and our aching groans. So when we we face deep loss, when we wrestle with life-changing decisions or are just downright disappointed with the way life is going or what we think God might be doing in one situation or another, Paul reminds us it's okay to be left speechless. That it's okay to just say, "Ah." when our human vocabulary feels insufficient, the language of the Spirit speaks up. And our wordless groans make complete sense to the Heavenly Father. 
as the Spirit speaks on our behalf. Paul also writes in verse 27 that we, we find help in the unknown as our hearts are searched. Scripture is full of, of different titles for God, Yahweh, the Almighty, the, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord of hosts, or as we've been exploring, Daddy. But here Paul gives us another one. The one who searches our hearts, or more literally, the searcher of hearts who knows the mind of the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but the idea that God is searching my heart is both exciting and a little terrifying. The the Greek word that Paul uses, it, it paints a picture of someone lighting a torch and looking around a large, dark room for something specific. Oh, I mean, that should make you a little unsettled. It makes me a little unsettled. One of my, my favorite scenes, you all know that I'm a huge uh, Star Wars nerd. Um, and, and one of my, my favorite scenes from Star Wars comes from The Empire Strikes Back. Um, and I didn't really get the significance of it the first few times I watched it. Luke Skywalker, he goes to Dagobah. The home where Master Yoda, where Master Yoda lives so he can be trained. And after, uh, after Luke finds Yoda, he, he's running around the swamp with Yoda on his back. He's, he's swinging by vines. He's, he's running around. Yoda's coaching him as he, he runs through the planet. And they stop. And they're talking about the difference between the force and the, the dark side. And Luke says, I feel cold. I feel cold like there's something that's not right here. And then he goes into a cave and he sees Darth Vader. Now, it's really just a a test. You've had years to watch the movie, so I hope this isn't a spoiler. (laughs) Decades to watch the movie. He he goes, he goes into the cave. It's not really Darth Vader, but it's, it's something that he needs to deal with on his own. It's a test that he ultimately fails. But Luke is searching for something specific. That is the image I see when I think of a a search, the search going on, looking for something specific. So as God searches those those dark places of our hearts, those caves where where we don't want to go or maybe shouldn't always be, he's going to find the things that we're ashamed of, things that we would honestly rather just keep hidden, deep pains, deep hurts, Things that we don't have the words to describe. That's why we groan. (sighs) And Paul tells us that it's in that place that God finds the Spirit. The help we're promised for the future can give us courage and strength to, to go into those spaces today. The second promise is connected to the first. Paul reminds us that as God's children, God is constantly watching out for us. Romans 8.28 it's, it's one of those verses that we, we kind of always turn to when we're going through a difficult time. And, and we need a reminder that even though the world is hurting, even though the, the world is full of pain, that God is there, that God is for us, that God is with us. It's a promise that, that changes the way that we, we look at the good and the bad and the ugly of our lives. So when we look at the good parts of life, when we have reason to celebrate, we, we do so differently because God is with us. So when followers of Christ, uh, when followers of Christ find that things are working out, we acknowledge that it's working out because of God. It's all God's doing. It's God's grace, God's grace revealed in our lives. 
And when we approach the, the hard, the bad, and the ugly, this promise reminds us of the big picture. It aims to diminish our fear and anxiety. Now, this doesn't mean at all that our fear or our anxiety aren't real or that they, they don't matter. That, that's not the, the promise. But this promise is the reminder is that God is, is with us in those spaces. It's a promise that should help us to relax because our fate isn't something of chance or, or something that is controlled by a vindictive God that can't wait to, to tell us what we've done wrong. If God is working for our good in everything, then we should see that both the good and the bad serve a purpose, even when we don't know what that purpose is. Paul isn't saying that everything that happens to us is good, but he is saying that God uses all that happens for a purpose. It's often the hard things in our lives that that teach us, that mold us, that, that humble us. And that have the potential to bring us closer to one another and, and closer to God as well. Romans 8.28, it also reminds us that, that none of us is perfect. None of us is perfect. Sin will be a reality until the moment that not yet kingdom is fully realized. Now there are times in my life where I've, I've read Paul's words here in Romans 8.28. I've wanted to argue with them. You don't have to raise your hand and say if you've been there too, but where I've wanted to, to argue with them, maybe through one tragedy or, or another, and I've wanted to shout, really, really, how is this going to be worked out for good? How? I don't see it. I'm guessing that you've been in a similar place at one time or another. About 15 years ago, I was going through a difficult time trying to figure out what was next for me, uh, what, what was coming, where, where God was calling me, what, what was next. And for whatever reason, this passage came up in a conversation I was having with a mentor, one of my mentors named Jeff. And, and I read, I know, I know, I know, we know that all things God works for the good of those who love them. And, and Jeff said to me, did you read the next verse? Always a good idea. Always a good idea. Did you read the next verse? Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed the image of his son. So God oversees everything, the good and the bad, even when we don't understand what's happening, even when we're caught in the middle of something where we just want to say, oh, I don't see the goodness, in order that we might be conformed to the image of his son. I think Paul wants us to come away with this text with a renewed sense of assurance as we look to the future so that we can remain patient knowing that the God who began a good work in us is still continuing that work now, no matter what it is that we're going through. The tail end of Romans 8 includes some of Paul's most, most quoted words. They summarize the point that I think he's trying to make in this whole chapter. He says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that 
who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Who? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Loving God, we we thank you for these promises. For the, the promise that you help when we don't have words. For the promise that you dive into the depths of our heart. And for the assurance that you're working in every area of our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen.